0: morning God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption is our series point theme we're going to be in Ruth 2 today but in my opening I'm going to ask you to think about the book of Esther for a minute you remember young girl becomes queen king is a puppet for Haman his right-hand man Haman's evil hates jews Wants to kill him, gets the puppet moron king to sign his genocidal decree. God's people are in trouble. So most people think about that story and they think the climax of the Esther narrative is that dramatic scene where she goes into the royal chamber not knowing if she'd be welcomed by the king or sentenced to death for approaching him. If I perish, I perish. An exciting scene, no doubt. In fact... The Book of Esther is much more of an epic thriller than The Book of Ruth. I would have watched The Book of Esther as a movie as a teenager. Uh, But that scene really really isn't the apex of the Esther story. The real climax of that narrative is another scene. It's the one where the king can't sleep. Remember that scene? So, let me rephrase. Not a scene where the king can't sleep, a scene where it just so happens that the king can't sleep and it just so happens He decides he wants to pass the time by having someone read him court records. Not how I would pass the time if I can't sleep. And it just so happens that the person reading the court records happens to read the section about Mordecai informing the king about that assassination attempt from earlier in the book. And it just so happens that this moron puppet king is in a happy enough mood that he wonders if Mordecai ever got rewarded for that. Which he hadn't. So... The king wants to reward him, and it just so happens that Haman, the bad guy, is walking through the royal courtyard at the exact time that the king needs someone to go reward Mordecai. Remember, he says, go grab whoever's in the courtyard to come and help me with this, and it just so happens it's Haman, and then it just so happens that the previous events in the Esther story create this comedic, crazy situation in which Haman and the king have this conversation, and you remember Haman thinks they're both talking about him when the king says, how should I honor this guy that I really want to honor? Haman thinks he's talking about him. The king, of course, is not talking about him. So Haman thinks it's going to be him who's honored, but it's not. And then the thrilling conclusion of the whole narrative is this crazy, seemingly coincidental situation in which Haman and Mordecai's situations flip entirely. It's not just that Haman loses and Mordecai wins. It's that Haman's the one hanging from the gallows, and Mordecai's the one sitting at the king's right hand. So all this happens seemingly coincidentally, right? The writer of Esther never mentions God, as you probably know. The only book of the Bible where God's never mentioned once. But the writer tells the story in a way that makes it obvious this could not have just happened this way. It's far too coincidental. So last week I argued similarly that to understand the book of Ruth, You cannot believe that anything just so happens. It cannot be that chance or coincidence or fate or karma or luck guides the affairs of human beings. It can't be true that all the things I just listed from Esther 6 were coincidental. It can't be. God must be sovereign. So it is not lost on me how difficult it is to speak and talk about the sovereignty of God as people are dying and church families in our midst are struggling with finances and physical help, but the statement that is a wound now proves to me medicine in time, which is that God gives and God takes away. Coincidence and meaning cannot coexist. If chance and luck exists, it would be absolutely true that not everything you do matters, and it would be absolutely true that death and suffering and pain don't matter either. So, We say the opposite. And our entire thesis for this four-week series on Ruth is that the things in your life that the world or Satan or the devil tell you don't matter actually do matter to God. Why? Because God likes to use the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. The first step in developing that point is establishing the foundation of God's sovereignty, which we did last week. The next step... Today is seeing what we mean by the everyday faithfulness of normal people. What exactly does that mean? We're going to get a good look at uh, the character and decision making of two of our three main players, Ruth and Boaz. These two will provide for us a solid picture of what it looks like to be consistently faithful in ways that do not necessarily attract a lot of attention. There were no cameras watching these people as they Lived their lives. It happens to be written down for us, which makes us think it was more epic than it was, but it wasn't really. They don't win any Christian service awards or gain prestige or notability. They will be used by God because God doesn't need prestige or notability to use people. In fact, we're arguing He wants the exact opposite. He wants you to be consistently faithful in the normal, everyday, boring, mundane stuff of your life. That's why we need the book of Ruth. So we're going to read all of chapter two, but before we do, let's pray one more time this morning. Father, we ask that you, would, that you would be with us. We know, of course, that you're here with us in your omnipresence, but we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to your Spirit's teaching, that what I say would please you, that if anything I say is displeasing or useless, it would be forgotten soon, that you would Free us from the distractions that fill our minds so we can hear what you want us to hear. We, we happily submit ourselves to your authority as communicated in your word and would ask that you, that you respond to our submission with illumination, that we would learn and grow and be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we ask, amen. Ruth chapter 2. I'm reading from the ESV. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. They answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't reproach her. Also, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Our story continues. Lots could be drawn from this chapter. One sermon is not enough to do justice to any of these four chapters, but we're going to focus on what I think the main purpose of this particular chapter is in light of the whole message of the book, okay? After the writer makes clear in chapter one, God's in control. and Remember, he did that in the way that In the way that he framed the conflict and in the way he reported Naomi's response to the conflict, he communicated God's absolute control. After establishing that, now in chapter 2, he gives us this scene in which Ruth and Boaz meet and interact. And this is going to provide us with a great picture of everyday faithfulness, which will help us to strive to understand the main point of the whole book, which is that God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. So the question is, what does the everyday faithfulness of normal people look like? That's the question. And in answering that, let me make three points today about the way these two act, the way Ruth and Boaz act. The first is short and sweet. They're not trying to be epic. They're not trying to save the day or take matters into their own hand. This is not because they are not aware of the problem. The main conflict of the book is the second half of chapter 1, verse 5. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's the problem. Naomi is destitute and seemingly hopeless. Ruth, obviously, is aware of this problem. Boaz is also aware of the problem, though not as intimately. He knew what was going on. When Naomi and Ruth come back into town at the end of chapter 1, it says, the whole town was stirred because of them, in verse 19. So, they're the talk of the town. Latest piece of... Juicy gossip. You can imagine what people would be saying. Is that Naomi that we saw the other day? She used to have such a nice family. Then she moved. Now she's back. She's all alone. She's lonely. She's depressed. She looks lonely and depressed. Brought that Moabite back with her. A lot of good that's going to do, right? Let's pray for her because that makes the conversation okay. So even before reading chapter 2, we know Boaz doubtlessly knows about Naomi and Ruth, but then we see in verse 11 of chapter 2 when Boaz says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So even the details, it sounds like, have gotten around pretty efficiently. He'd heard about what Ruth had done in committing herself to to Naomi. And yet, to, to my first point, neither Boaz nor Ruth are trying to be heroes. They aren't jumping to take matters into their own hands. They're not Spending time stressed out about how to solve this long-term problem? It is kind of a good question to ask if Boaz knew he was a relative, and he was a really good dude, which we're going to argue he was, and he knew that Naomi was destitute, why didn't he try sooner to go and redeem them? If he knows he's the missing piece to the puzzle, right? We'll talk about that in chapter 4 especially, and there is a good answer. I don't mean to cast doubt upon Boaz, right? But... The point is, they both know the problem. They both could have done things to try and take matters into their own hands, but they don't really, they don't really. They don't do nothing, okay? What they do is, this is point number two. Point number one, they don't try to be heroes. Point number two, they just do the next thing. When I was a child growing up at a church in Davenport, um, there was an older lady named Dorothy Iverson. Just like the perfect old lady name when you're a little kid growing up in a church. She made the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. That's no joke. Dorothy uh, was known for her faithful, consistent, mundane service to the Lord. She was a, she was a model of exactly the kind of thing we're talking about uh, in this series. She's since gone to be with the Lord, but her husband died when her kids were young. She was a school teacher, which probably has me biased in her favor. She's a school teacher. Uh, single mom, raised her kids the right way under the sound of the word, never gained any notable amount of popularity in the Christian world, never wrote books, never spoke at conferences, Uh, but when she died, dozens and dozens and dozens of people testified to the small everyday things she did that the Lord had used. And her son, Jim, who was an elder at that church I grew up in, would uh, often use his mother as an example of following God's will in your life. He'd do a sermon on God's will, and he would use his mom as an example because she had a famous saying. When people would ask her about figuring out what to do and knowing what God's will for your life is, she would always say, this isn't a direct quote, but this is the essence of it. She'd say, I don't spend a lot of time trying to find God's will in my life. I just wake up and do the next thing. That was her catchphrase of sorts. Anyone who knew her knew that despite her plain and simple-minded motto, God used her mightily, very, very mightily. And they miss her. I miss her. Boaz and Ruth are models of everyday faithfulness in the way they do the next thing here in chapter 2. Ruth wakes up, tells Naomi, I'm going to go glean in the fields, not because she's bored and not because it would be fun or entertaining, it's simply the next thing to do. The law is clear. Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 24. This is what poor and destitute people do in this society. Leviticus 19.9 says, To farmers, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Deuteronomy 24.19 adds, when you, If you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the, father, the fatherless, the widow. So this is built into Israel's economy so that people like Ruth and Naomi can get some food, not unlike our society and many other societies. When I was 10 or 11, my dad lost his job, three kids, stay-at-home mom. So he and mom started applying for jobs and in the meantime, went to the government office and applied for food stamps and unemployment and lived off of the forced generosity of other taxpayers. Just like in Israel, it's a law. You have to be generous. You have to leave the corners of the field for the poor people to come along, to come along and, and pick them so that they can survive. So Ruth and Naomi are the poorest of the poor. What does Ruth do? The next thing, she goes and gleans. What about Boaz? So if, if I've convinced you Ruth was doing the next thing and not trying to be a superhero, what about Boaz? I'd argue he does the next thing as well. He arrives at his field Didn't know Ruth was there, wasn't expecting her. He arrives at his field, which God has sovereignly led Ruth to, and he asks the normal question of his manager. Who's the new girl? Haven't seen this girl before. Finds out who it is, and then does the next thing, which is to welcome her to the field, assure her that there will always be plenty there. Verses 8 and 9 say, Now listen, my daughter, don't go glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Don't worry about that. Ruth, when you're thirsty, you can go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn, meaning you don't need to be an outcast. You can go and drink that water. He's simply telling Ruth she'll be safe there. It is safe to assume. Boaz has told people this before. Whenever a new woman shows up to glean, it would normally be a woman because it would normally be a widow, right? They show up to glean. It's safe to assume Boaz would go, find out who they are, tell them, glean all you want. You're welcome here. And that's what he does. That's what he does with Ruth. He's doing the next thing. He didn't wake up that morning stressed out about trying to figure out how to save the day and make everything work out for all the homeless people he knew, which was a lot of people. He woke up saying, God, show me the next thing to do. Give me the strength to do the next thing. And in doing so, he and Ruth are a model for us of what the everyday faithfulness of normal people is. Don't try to save the world, just do the next thing. Might be a struggle for you. This is, those of you who know me well, know this is a struggle for me. This could be the struggle for me. Capital T-H-E, all bold, italics underlined. (laughs) That came out better than I thought it was going to come out. (laughs) When Joe and I first met and talked about what we wanted to do later in life, I would, I jokingly told her that I want to run the world, which was, it was not as much of a joke as it sounded like. Uh, I see people and I want to fix them and I see problems and I want to solve them. And if I see ladders, I want to climb them as fast as possible. I would always, it's crazy that I said these things out loud, but I still think them today. I tell people when I was a high school teacher, I wanna be the best high school teacher. You wanna be good? No, I don't wanna be a good high school teacher. I wanna be the best one. Because someone's gotta be the best one. I mean, someone's going to be, so it might as well be me, is the idea. So, yeah, there's a place for godly ambition, but let me be the first to tell you from experience, there are countless problems with this mindset. Makes you controlling, makes you proud, gives you a superiority and savior savior complex, leads to a debilitating amount of stress a good amount of the time. There is not a verse in the entire Bible that tells you you are responsible for solving all the problems of the world or all the problems in your friends' lives. I think the Bible does teach us we are responsible to do the next thing that God sets before us. Sometimes that is exciting, which we'll talk about next week, but... We are responsible for the next thing that God sets before us. I think that Ruth woke up, asked God for strength to do the next thing, and the next thing was to go and glean. So she did it. And that Boaz woke up, asked God for strength to do the next thing, and God put Ruth in his path. So the next thing was be kind and generous to this person. So he did it. The most tragically ironic thing about this is that when all you think about is solving all the problems around you, you end up being too stressed and distracted to do what is actually in front of you. So this is the college student too stressed, thinking about what exactly they're gonna use their college degree for to get the homework done to get the college degree in the first place, right? Or the working dad so consumed with the job he has to provide for his family that he doesn't make time to go and be with the family that he's providing for. Or the stay-at-home mom consumed thinking about what a career might look like, that she can't actually do what's right in front of her that day, which is raise the kids. Or the church leader, who is so consumed with ministry and fixing everybody up, that he doesn't ever minister to his wife and kids. I have heard, as maybe, probably you have, of women who have said they would be better off if they were a generic member in their church, because then they would get more ministry from their husband, right? You see the irony of the situation when you try to save the day, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Ruth and Boaz are not trying to save the day or be epic. They're just doing the next thing. So point number one, they're not trying to save the day. Point number two, they're doing the next thing. Third point and final point, they're doing the right thing. So as we've talked about doing the next thing, it's kind of assumed, has been assumed that the next thing is the right thing but i think doing the right thing is something to emphasize on its own because of how we see ruth and boaz behave okay so maybe uh let me frame it this way what should motivate you to do the next thing when it's difficult a lot of the time it's not difficult but when it is difficult what keeps you from taking the easy way out or the easy road out and the answer is That we aren't just told to do the next thing, we're told to do the right thing. It's got to be both. So consider the courage required of Ruth to go and glean, okay? You may have noticed throughout the book, the writer makes clear, Ruth has a label, and that is that she's a Moabite. The narrator refers to her this way multiple times. one twenty-two, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 21, more in chapters 3 and 4, Ruth the Moabite, okay? The writer's not a racist, you understand, So why does he refer to her that way as he's telling the story? Because he wants us to notice she has a label. The dialogue between the characters makes clear she's viewed this way too. Boaz asks who the new girl is. The foreman responds, not that she's Ruth, she's the Moabite that came back with Naomi, right? That's the way it works. With that label comes danger, okay? Poor treatment of foreigners and immigrants is common in any society. Israel at this time, no exception. Moab and Israel have a very uh, complicated relationship, historically, to say the least. Add to that the fact that this is the time when the judges ruled, and what you get is a high likelihood that someone like Ruth is in a reasonable amount of danger when going out alone. This is why Boaz, when he's encouraging Ruth to stay in his fields, specifies, my men are not going to touch you. You will be safe here. The inference being that Ruth is the kind of person that under normal circumstances, men would want to harm. This is why Naomi, at the end of chapter 2, tells Ruth it's a good idea to do what Boaz says and stay in his field, quote, lest in another field you be assaulted. Okay, so you don't have to infer anything about that. It's explicit, right? Naomi says Ruth could very well be mugged, raped, or both under normal circumstances in another field. We can safely assume Ruth was aware of that danger, as Boaz and Naomi were, so now re-examine Ruth's decision to go and glean in the fields at the beginning of the chapter, aware of that danger. She doesn't know that Boaz is out there and that Boaz's field is out there, right? Maybe hopeful, but she doesn't know that. All she knows is she's committed herself to taking care of Naomi, and they need to eat. They're going to starve. Where else are they going to get food? Nowhere. She's got to glean. She's got to glean. She trusts God to protect her, and she goes. So it's not just the next thing. It's the right thing to do. The right thing to do. She entrusts herself to God, which is what Boaz praises her for in verse 12. She has come to the God of Israel under whose wings she finds refuge. Refuge in the face of that danger. So it takes faith. Now, what about Boaz? The stigma and danger attached to Ruth as a foreigner also sheds light on Boaz's decision to be so hospitable and generous to Ruth. It's obvious he goes above and beyond. So, it's fair to assume, as I said, Boaz is consistently kind, but this situation is different because of the label. Ruth points this out herself. Her first reaction to Boaz in verse 10 is this. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? So, the only kind of notice that Ruth is used to getting is the negative kind, for sure, yeah. It's impossible to know exactly what kind of negative notice, but they're the talk of the town. She's a foreigner. She's wondering why Boaz would be so kind to her, which is against the way she has been treated. So this is to say, Ruth isn't one of Boaz's hired servants. She'll say it again at the end of 13. Thank you for doing this for me, even though I'm not one of your servants, meaning one of your paid servants. You're not obligated to me in any way, and yet you're treating me this way. She's not a native. She's not an employee. Why are you treating me this way? Boaz's response, I'm speculating, is because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. He goes even further. He goes way above and beyond. Not only can Ruth glean in his fields, she can glean there the entire harvest season. She can take breaks with the rest of the workers. She can draw water where the rest of the workers draw water. He commands the workers to leave more than usual in her path so that she gets more. He welcomes her to his table that first day so he's going above and beyond now we'll talk next week about whether he's crushing on her right where the where the line is between just being a so he's a nice dude he it's it's easy to say he was extra nice because she's extra destitute because she's a foreigner right so at what point is it more than that? And I like you, so I'm treating you kindly. There is there's good reason to believe there's not much of that at all here because he's so much older. Tradition says Boaz is 80 and Ruth is 40. Later on, when Ruth proposes, you know what Boaz says, thanks for not going for someone your age, pretty much, right? So bunny trail, spoiler alert. Stay tuned for more, okay? He's going above and beyond in chapter two. He's, he's doing more than the next thing. He's doing what's right in his, in his righteousness, which is really the point I'm trying to make. There's people who just do the next thing. It's like that's the bare minimum required of us, but there's something more that we're compelled by. We want to be, we want to be solid people, people of integrity. That's who Ruth and Boaz are. At the very, uh, I think it's the first verse of chapter two, Boaz is called a, a, a worthy man in the ESV. It's a lot of different phrases and a lot of different translations. But the feeling of that phrase is he's just a solid guy. He's the person you call when, you need a, when your car breaks down and you need help, right? Because he'll do more than just the bare minimum for you. He'll take good care of you sort of thing. Beyond just doing the next thing, he does the right thing. These are the kind of people that God uses. People who are not distracted by trying to save the world people who simply do the right thing so if the question is do you want to be useful do you want to be useful to god the answer is that you don't have to have big plans or epic plans because god has epic plans and the kind of people he wants to carry out his epic plans are people not consumed with their own it's counterintuitive right god has sovereign he has a sovereign plan of redemption And he has a bunch of little sovereign plans of redemption in all of our lives. This is the trend of all of our lives, to be redeemed and restored in a variety of ways. Those are epic plans. The kind of people that get in God's way, for lack of a better phrase, are the people who are consumed about their own epic plans and think they know how to solve everything, right? He wants people willing to do the day-to-day stuff. And so I would encourage you to wake up, and pray lord help me today to simply do the next thing and to do the right thing it's the hardest thing in the world to simply see what god has put in front of you today right now the distractions of the world look exciting they are more exciting a lot of the time god has put the seemingly mundane and boring things in front of you right just doing the homework or making the meal or doing the dishes or paying the bill or Saying hi to that person or doing your job, going to work. And then when it's time, the next thing is going home, right? The mundane things are the things that we need the strength to do, okay? Most days are not that exciting. That's the way God likes it. That is the way God likes it. So that said, next week, chapter 3, we'll see. Sometimes things can be exciting. Sometimes the next thing is to ask the girl out. Or ladies, sometimes the next thing is to creep into the guy's bedroom and uncover his feet and wait there awkwardly for him to wake up and then propose to him, because your mother-in-law told you to. It's it's inter- it's interesting. It's interesting. The question, the que- the next question is, what's the difference between trying to save the day and seizing opportunities God has put before you? And the answer to that question is sometimes difficult. So that will be that will be where we move next week. But you see the trend. The point is God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. You must assume the sovereignty of God, chapter one, or none of it makes a lick of sense. Now we have an idea of what the everyday faithfulness of normal people looks like, and we'll move on to kind of flesh out knowing when to do certain things and when not to. So let's pray. We'll have more fun next week. Father, thank you for this book. So much for us to learn. Certainly far more than could ever be covered in, in 4 uh, four thirty-five 35-minute sessions. Well, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the command to teach your word in season and out. Thank you for revealing this truth to us. Help us to be people who strive to simply do the next thing and do the right thing. Help us to, help us to recognize what is right in front of us, which shouldn't be hard, but it is hard, to clear out the smoke and the fog of distractions and to do the things that you have given us to do today. Everyone wants to matter. We want to matter. We want to be significant. Help us to understand that from your perspective, being significant means everyday faithfulness. Faithfulness to you. Thank you for Ruth's example, Boaz's example. Thank you for Christ's example, who is our our ultimate model in this. In his name we ask, amen.